Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Late one night in August 1985, a twin-engine jet landed at the municipal airport in Oinaga, Mexico. As soon as the plane taxied to a stop, it was surrounded by a convoy of SUVs and pickup trucks. Like clockwork, a crew of armed gunmen surrounded the plane, opened the hatch, and hauled out the cargo, stacking the cardboard boxes into the beds of their trucks. Three uniformed soldiers stepped out of the cement guard booth. They watched silently, rifles at the ready, as a scar-faced man in old-fashioned bandito attire paced through the crew. He opened one of the boxes and pulled out a white, rectangular package wrapped tight in plastic tape. Cocaine. The guards braced themselves as the man approached their booth. He pulled out a wad of cash and gave them each a few bills. They nodded, shoved the money into their pockets, and let the plane finish unloading. The money, the soldiers knew, was just a gesture of goodwill. Even if they told their superiors what they saw, Nothing would be done about it. The entire Mexican military was on Pablo Acosta's payroll. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. This is the second of three episodes on Pablo Acosta Villarreal, the drug trafficker who ruled the U.S.-Mexico border in the 1980s. Last week, we examined Pablo's rise to power as the reigning kingpin of Oinaga, Mexico. This week, we'll take a look at the choices he made while he was in power, choices that inadvertently brought about his own downfall. 
In our final episode next week, we'll see exactly how Pablo was dethroned and discuss the devastating consequences that still linger generations after his death. You can listen to all of Parcast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's get back to the story of Pablo Acosta. In December 1980, 43-year-old Pablo Acosta took over as leader of Oinagas Plaza, the federal protection scheme that ruled Mexico's drug trade. He ruled over the border region with a small, trusted circle of friends and family, including Marco de Haro, his chief enforcer, his brothers Juan, Hector Manuel, and Armando, and his nephew Pedro, a sullen, silent young man who left a quiet life in Texas to join his uncle. And beneath them were the runners who physically smuggled drugs across the border, either hidden in cars and trucks or flown over in small stolen airplanes. The DEA estimated that at its height, the Pablo Acosta Organization, as they dubbed it, employed 500 associates across the U.S. and Mexico. As controller of the plaza, Pablo was essentially the regional manager of a nationwide, government-sanctioned racket. Every other trafficker in Oinaga paid Pablo for permission to run drugs through his territory, and in turn, Pablo paid the federal police for their blessing. But Pablo wasn't content to quietly obey his federal overseers. He wanted to be their equal partner. He hired military soldiers to guard and tend to his marijuana fields. He even managed to obtain police badges for himself and his crew, giving them authority to do whatever they pleased. In a sense, Pablo was Oinaga. He controlled the cops and ran the city's biggest industry. But he was also responsible for the services the corrupt government failed to provide. Building bridges, repairing schools, paying medical bills for the poor and elderly. In return, he earned the people's loyalty. He had the whole town on the lookout if anyone tried to bother him. Not that anyone would try to bother him. Between his police protection and his own squad of ruthless gunmen, picking a fight with Pablo was a suicide mission. For the most part, the city's smugglers knew it was in their best interest to treat him with respect. There was only one man in Oinaga who wouldn't be cowed by Pablo's authority, Fermin Arivalo. Fermin Arevalo had been a heavy hitter in Oinaga's narcotics scene since the 60s, but he'd never paid tribute to the area's plaza leader. The Arevalo family had worked out their own separate protection scheme with the Chihuahua State Police, outside of the deal the other traffickers struck with the federal police. A few years back, Fermin had helped secure Pablo's release from prison after a drug bust and the two families had been close ever since. Fermin always thought he'd take over the official plaza someday, but instead it went to Pablo, a social climbing upstart who'd been in Oinaga for less than five years. The moment Pablo took control, 
the old friendship began to strain. In January 1981, a plane carrying a load of Pablo's drugs was seized by American law enforcement. He suspected that Fermin's son, Lily Arevalo, had snitched on him. Over the next year, a few more of Pablo's shipments were hijacked, and each time, Pablo suspected the Arevalos were behind it. But he never had proof. It was only circumstantial. Things finally came to a head in August 1982. Pablo had fronted Fermin a shipment of marijuana, but Fermin never paid him back for it. He claimed his own buyer never paid him for the shipment. So Pablo called up the buyer, and he said his sons had personally hand-delivered the money to Fermin's son, Lily. Someone was lying. Pablo dragged the buyer's two sons down to Oinaga and forced them into the back of a car with Marco Dejaro and another enforcer. He told them that they were going to drive around town, and if they recognized the man they'd given the money to, they should point him out to Marco. As the car was patrolling downtown, one of the sons pointed inside an ice cream parlor and said, that's him there. He's the one we gave the money to. There, inside the ice cream parlor, were Lily and Lupe Arevalo. Just as Lily and Lupe were stepping out of the shop with their ice cream cones, Marco and the other gunmen unloaded on them with semi-automatic rifles. Lily was hit 21 times and died immediately. His brother Lupe was seriously wounded too. It goes without saying that there was no legitimate investigation into the shooting. But when Fermin Arevalo went to identify his son Lily's body at the morgue, he tightened his jaw and said, I know who did it. Pablo insisted for the rest of his life that he hadn't sanctioned Lily Arevalo's murder. His men had done it without his permission. But the Arevalos held him responsible, and they were out for vengeance. Two months later, in October 1982, Pablo and Marco were ambushed in broad daylight in front of a restaurant downtown. They sped away as bullets pierced through their truck's back window. Not far down the road, Pablo lost control and veered into an oncoming pickup truck. Pablo was thrown from his truck as it spun across the road. Marco climbed out unharmed and saw three gunmen running toward them from across the road. He grabbed his gun, popped up over the truck's hood, and fired off a burst of shots, knocking down two of the shooters. And then he saw a school bus coming down the road. The bus slowed to a stop. The last remaining shooter dragged one of his wounded friends behind the bus out of Marco's line of sight. Moments later, a sedan rocketed away. Marco fired at the car, sending it zigzagging down the road and into the ditch. He waved down a passing pickup truck. The driver, a middle-aged school teacher, stopped to help, thinking there'd been a traffic accident. He and Marco lifted Pablo's bleeding body into the bed of his truck. He had no idea what he'd gotten himself into until he saw the bullet-riddled gunman sprawled on the other side of the road. Marco grabbed a few rounds of ammunition from the wreckage and hopped into the teacher's truck. He told him, step on it. There may be more of them around here. When they got to Pablo's house, his wife Olivia rushed in with a towel. 
She cleaned up her husband's face while Marco explained what had happened. From their conversation, the teacher pieced together exactly who the wounded man was. He didn't recognize Pablo Acosta's face, but everyone in Oinaga knew his name. The teacher said goodbye and slipped out the door. Olivia was furious. Marco had been the one who killed Lily Arevalo, and now the whole family was after her husband in retaliation. As Pablo came to, he agreed that Fermin Arevalo was behind the ambush, but he wasn't interested in assigning blame. What he wanted was revenge. The feud between the Acostas and the Arevalos continued for another six months. American officials counted 26 murders related to the conflict, and they presumed there were even more deaths they didn't know about. On one occasion, Marco de Haro, Pablo's brother Juan, and a few other gunmen opened fire on a few Arevalo cousins outside a taco stand downtown. Sometime after that, a retired police chief, a distant cousin of Pablo's, was found shot to death right by the edge of the Rio Grande. The final blow came in April 1983 at a dance hall a few hours south of Oinaga. At about 3 a.m., after most of the crowd had already gone home, the light suddenly went out. Still at the party were Pablo's brother Juan and another Acosta cousin. When the lights came back on, Juan was lying dead near the entrance, drenched in blood. His cousin had been shot to death just outside. The culprits were already gone, but the Arevalos were later overheard bragging about it. Pablo had tried to let the feud run its course. After all, his crew had started it. But after losing his brother, he couldn't tolerate any more bloodshed. He sent a messenger to Fermin Arevalo with an offer to meet and settle things peacefully, without weapons. Fermin refused. So, with a peaceful resolution off the table, there was only one recourse left. Pablo took a trip to the Arevalo ranch with his full arsenal of automatic weapons. Up next, we'll see how much blood it took to finally put an end to the feud. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now back to the story. On the afternoon of August 24th, 1983, Pablo Acosta's Ford Bronco climbed the gravel road to Fermin Arevalo's ranch house. With him were his younger brother, Hector Manuel, 
his nephew Pedro, and two other gunmen. When they pulled up in front of the house, Fermin's wife, Antonia, came to the door. Pablo told her he wanted to talk to Fermin. She said Fermin wasn't home, but Pablo had been staking out the area for days, and he noticed that the same two trucks were still parked in front of the house. Fermin had to be there somewhere. Pablo invited himself in and sat down in a chair near the door. He told Antonia that he didn't have anything to do with her son's murder. His men had done it without his permission. He went on to list everyone who'd been killed as a result of the feud. If it were a contest, the Arevalos were ahead by a wide margin. But apparently, it still wasn't enough. Pablo pulled his pistol from behind his back. He cocked it, held it by the barrel, and passed it to Antonia. With tears rolling down his face, he told her, If you think it will bring Lily back, then kill me. Antonia took the gun. She looked at it, then looked past Pablo's shoulder. His men were still waiting by the Bronco, staring straight at her, machine guns at the ready. She gave the pistol back. Pablo huffed outside and shouted back at her, If Fermin doesn't want to put an end to this, You tell that son of a bitch we're going to screw him over, and screw him over good. Pablo's Bronco hadn't made it half a mile from the house when two men jumped up from the ditch, Fermin and one of his ranch hands. They shouldered their assault rifles and let loose a spray of bullets. Pablo ducked under the dashboard for protection. In the back seat, his nephew Pedro scrambled to the floor and reached for his rifle. Fermin fired through his entire 40-round clip, riddling the Bronco with bullets. As he paused to reload, Pedro swung his gun over the front seat and fired out the windshield. Fermin dropped. A white pickup truck slowed to a stop just a bit down the road. The driver, the ranch's foreman, jumped out and grabbed his rifle, ready to join in the action. But Pedro shot him in the head before he could get off a single round. The Acostas got out of the Bronco to survey the damage. Fermin and the ranch foreman were both dead. The other shooter had dropped his rifle and ran. And just like that, the feud was over. The rest of the Aravalo family scattered. Fermin's surviving son Lupe moved south to Chihuahua City, far outside Pablo's jurisdiction, where he continued dealing heroin. When the news of the shootout got around town, Pablo became something of a folk hero. He towed his bullet-riddled Ford Bronco back to town and parked it next to the highway near his house, a reminder of his invincibility. After the feud ended, there were still regular shootouts, murders, and kidnappings around Oinaga. But it's unknown if Pablo was responsible for any of them or if they were the work of other drug factions. What is clear is that no other serious rivals dared to challenge Pablo for the next few years. Pablo went back to life as usual, packing trucks full of dope and shipping them off to the border, shaking down drug mules who tried to steal from him, passing out money to the sick elderly folks who lined up outside his house. But being on the top was all too easy. He was itching to expand. The U.S.-Mexico border is around 2,000 miles long. 
Pablo Acosta only controlled about 200 miles of it. And a few hours west of Oinaga, there was already something happening that Pablo wanted in on. Up until the early 80s, Colombian cocaine was mainly smuggled into the U.S. through Florida. But as U.S. law enforcement focused their anti-smuggling efforts on Florida, the Colombians began shifting their focus to the Mexican border, forging alliances with the Mexican heroin and marijuana smuggling networks that were already in place. Sometime in the early 80s, a group of drug traffickers based in southwestern Guadalajara, Mexico, were approached by the Medellin cartel, one of Colombia's two major drug operations. They proposed that the Mexican traffickers use their smuggling network to move Colombian cocaine through Mexico and into the U.S. In return, they were paid in cocaine. They kept 50% of all the drugs they helped transport out of Colombia. Then they sold that cocaine to their own network of contacts, raking in an estimated $5 billion U.S. dollars a year. Exactly how Pablo Acosta was roped into the scheme isn't clear, but he had business ties with these traffickers in Guadalajara. It's likely that one of them saw the value of his central, border-adjacent territory and brought him into the fold. Sometime in 1984, Pablo flew down to Colombia and met with Carlos Later, a co-founder of the Medellin cartel. Pablo had only ever trafficked marijuana and heroin, but he knew about cocaine, and he knew it brought huge profits. They struck a deal to allow Colombian cocaine to be smuggled through Oinaga. Pablo's job was to receive shipments flying in from Colombia and store the cocaine in Oinaga until other traffickers came to pick it up. He was paid upwards of $1,000 per kilogram just for warehousing the drugs and allowing them to pass through his territory. This was an entirely new venture for Pablo, but it proved profitable. His warehouses became a sort of distribution headquarters for smuggling rings all over the country. By 1985, it was estimated that one-third of all the cocaine entering the United States had passed through Pablo's hands. One of the leaders of the Guadalajara cartel sent his 28-year-old nephew, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, up to Oinaga to work with Pablo, both to oversee their own cocaine shipments and to learn about border operations from the best. He was a fast learner and he soon became one of Pablo's most important partners. Throughout 1985, Pablo was moving as much as five tons of cocaine through his warehouses each month. Assuming his $1,000 per kilogram warehousing fee didn't change, he would have been making over $54 million a year from cocaine alone. With inflation, that's the equivalent of $126.5 million today. This is all on top of Pablo's own marijuana and heroin smuggling ring and the plaza fee he collected from all the other drug traffickers in Oinaga. It's not known how much he was making from those ventures, but it was sure to be millions. But the cocaine trade had its drawbacks. It was only a matter of time until U.S. officials realized that Colombian cartels had shifted their focus to the Mexican border, 
and any cocaine shipment that was seized near the border would almost inevitably be tied back to Pablo. The first setback came on July 13, 1985. A propane-fueled pickup truck stalled while pulling up to a U.S. Border Patrol checkpoint in Alamogordo, New Mexico. The officer on duty tried to help by checking the valve on the propane tank, but it was jammed shut. It also sounded like the tank was hollow and empty. This caught his eye, since smugglers had been hiding drugs in hollowed-out propane tanks for years. When the truck's fear-stricken teenage driver couldn't produce his license or registration, the patrolman called in for a search warrant. A team of officers chiseled into the tank and punched out a hole. Inside, they found 246 pounds of cocaine. The truck's driver was arrested. Four days later, investigators went out to search his apartment in El Paso, where they found another truck with 263 pounds of cocaine stashed in the propane tank. The DEA pieced together from informants that both loads of cocaine had come from Oinaga, under the supervision of Pablo Acosta. The agency had been keeping tabs on Pablo since he fled from a heroin bust in New Mexico in 1976. And now they had more motivation than ever to bring him down. Another equally pressing problem with cocaine was that Pablo was becoming addicted to his own product. Pablo, like most of his drug-running associates, had been an occasional cocaine user for years. But now that he had entire warehouses full of the drug, it became a regular habit. His nephew, Pedro, taught the crew how to cook the white powder down into a super potent solid form called crack. This made the drug smokable, instantly effective, and incredibly addictive. And by crushing the crack and packing it into the ends of cigarettes, it also became easy to take on the go. Crack-laced Marlboros became a daily staple for Pablo and his crew. Pablo took a hands-on role in brokering, arranging, transporting, and overseeing every deal. And at age 48, the long days and nights weren't easy on him. At first, these crack cigarettes were a godsend. One puff and he'd be back on his feet, even if he'd barely slept in days. Pablo's drug use drove a wedge between him and his wife, Olivia. She urged him again and again to get clean before it was too late, but he never took her advice. By the middle of 1985, the 48-year-old Kingpin's addiction was taking a downturn. He started to forget things, like important meetings he'd just recently set up. He'd repeat himself or lose his train of thought mid-sentence. Pablo had once been sharp and strategic, but his behavior was becoming more erratic by the day. In the summer of 1985, he did something truly incomprehensible. He struck up a friendship with a U.S. Customs narcotics agent. Up next, we'll find out what happened when the notorious drug lord met with the U.S. agent who'd been assigned to bring him down. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. 
Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Now, back to the story. In 1983, a U.S. customs agent named David Regala had been sent to Big Bend, Texas, about two hours east of Oinaga, with orders to disrupt the Pablo Acosta organization. Regala, an athletic, red-haired man who spoke limited Spanish, was one of the best narcotics officers in the agency. But he was hardly the best candidate to infiltrate the drug lord's inner circle. Pablo's operation employed hundreds of smugglers, dealers, and gunmen, but he only worked personally with blood relatives and a few trusted, long-standing business partners. Regula managed to arrest Pablo's younger brother, Armando, and his uncle, Manuel, after catching them with drugs north of the border. But two years into his assignment, Regula had never even seen the notorious Pablo Acosta. Unless he could lure the elusive drug lord into U.S. jurisdiction, his task was impossible. In early 1985, Regula started seeing a woman named Mimi Webb Miller. Mimi, former debutante niece of a Texas senator, had given up a career as an art collector to move to a ranch in the Mexico desert years earlier. Unbeknownst to Regula, the ranch next to Mimi Miller's was owned by one Pablo Acosta. Pablo and Mimi had been good friends for years. She wasn't involved in the drug trade at all, but in her years of living near the border, she'd grown accustomed to crime. Her neighbor's career as a drug kingpin didn't bother her at all. When Pablo found out Mimi was seeing a customs agent, the very agent who'd sent his brother and uncle to jail, he came over for a visit and asked her what the hell was going on. She replied, You don't have anything to worry about. All he wants to do is get into my pants. Pablo apparently accepted that answer. He didn't press the matter further until a few months later when he suddenly told Mimi he wanted to meet David Regala. Regala was wary of meeting a violent criminal on his own turf and without backup. He had no idea what the meeting was about, but this might be his only chance to forge a connection with his target, and Mimi had assured him Pablo was a man of honor, for whatever that was worth. So, on a summer evening in 1985, he traveled down to Oinaga to meet Pablo and Mimi at a small adobe-walled radio station. The moment they arrived, Pablo walked into the station owner's office, plopped a bottle of brandy onto his desk, and told him, we're going to use your office. Go get me some glasses. Pablo cracked open the brandy and asked Regula to tell him about how his brother and uncle had been captured. He wasn't upset. He actually said he was glad his brother was in jail, 
where he'd be forced to kick his heroin addiction. A few minutes into the conversation, the station owner knocked on the door and timidly asked if he could come back into his office. Pablo shouted back, Not now, Malakias. Get lost. The trio drank through an entire liter of brandy as the drug lord and the narcotics agent traded stories. Pablo told Regula all about his run-in with the DEA before he fled the United States, adding, of course, that he'd been set up and hadn't done anything wrong. They bonded over their shared memories of a shootout Regula had been involved in with some of Shorty Lopez's gunmen back in 76. Pablo hadn't been there for the showdown, but he had helped transport the drugs Regula's team seized that night, and he remembered hearing the gunfire as he drove back to Oinaga. Throughout the conversation, Pablo never denied being a drug trafficker. He freely admitted to smuggling marijuana, but insisted he didn't deal in heroin or cocaine. He was fully aware that the U.S. agent had no authority in Mexico, but for some reason, he still wouldn't confess to the full truth. The only logical conclusion was that he was preparing to cut a deal and come back to America. As the evening wound to a close around midnight, Regula tested the waters by suggesting that they could work together to get rid of some of Pablo's competitors. Pablo simply said, I'll think about it. After that first meeting, Regula and Pablo met up once a month, each time going about the same as the first, Pablo never asked for anything, and he never gave Regula any useful information either. He just rambled for hours, reminiscing about his shootouts, giving his opinions on economics and international relations. Regula had no interest in these conversations, but at least he was gaining Pablo's confidence. He hoped eventually something useful would come of it. But as the months went by, it became clear that Pablo had no specific agenda at all. He was just keeping his options open in case he ever needed to flee to the U.S. In fact, as early as May 1985, the DEA had heard rumors that Pablo was ready to retire. Things had been heating up since cocaine came to Oinaga, and he must have realized his days were numbered. Throughout the mid-80s, Crack abuse was becoming a hot-button issue in cities across America, and as a result, U.S. officials were ramping up border security. There were more officers patrolling the border than ever before, and it was getting more and more difficult to run drugs across without getting caught. The common drug mules of Oinaga blamed Pablo for this, since he'd been the one who brought cocaine into their town in the first place. And if the rank-and-file smugglers weren't loyal, they'd be more likely to cooperate with the DEA, or defect if someone tried to dethrone him. The drug landscape was shifting, and Pablo had put himself right in the center of it when he agreed to store cocaine for traffickers all over Mexico. Under the plaza system, there were countless small trafficking groups in each area, they all paid a cut of their profits to the region's plaza holder, but they were still independent operations, not bound by any loyalty to a larger crime syndicate. But that was all changing thanks to cocaine. The Guadalajara cartel, 
co-founded by Amado Carrillo's uncle, had been the first Mexican group to hook up with the Colombian cartels. They'd used the new drug to organize a smuggling network that spanned most of the country's west coast, using their massive profits to pay off officials in every city along the way. It was essentially a mega plaza, with wider reach and deeper connections than Mexico had ever seen. And he was the distribution base for all of it. If he played his cards right, he could leverage that position and expand his own power alongside the Guadalajara cartel. But as Pablo's crack abuse worsened, so did his decision-making. He couldn't keep track of appointments. His English skills deteriorated, and sometimes he didn't even make sense in his native Spanish. Pablo's warehousing enterprise was bringing traffickers from all over Mexico right into Oinaga. If he didn't pull it together, it was only a matter of time before one of them sensed his weakness and tried to take over the border town for themselves. On the evening of January 20th, 1986, Pablo, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, and a few of their associates met at Amado's three-story hilltop home in downtown Oinaga. They had some business to discuss, nothing out of the ordinary. As they were leaving, a truck raced down the dark street and started shooting, peppering Pablo's car with bullets. Pablo gunned it down the highway. He sped until he met a red light at a busy intersection, right next to a supermarket. The moment he pulled to a stop, at least a dozen men leapt out of the cars parked across the intersection, all armed with automatic rifles. The very moment they started shooting, a passing pickup truck crossed into the intersection. The truck skidded to a stop as the two innocent men inside slumped over, dead. The other cars at the intersection spun around and hightailed it out of the way. Inside the supermarket, families hit the ground as stray bullets tore through the windows. Pablo had two gunmen with him, but they were outnumbered. He shouted into the two-way radio he kept in the car, calling for backup. Almost immediately, another car pulled up and several men jumped out with machine guns. Pablo's crew was still outnumbered, but they were more experienced. They easily knocked down nearly all of the assailants. The last few shooters took shelter behind a small Pontiac Firebird, totally shielded from their line of fire. Pablo nodded for his men to get back into their vehicles. He stepped on the pedal and gunned it through the intersection, bumping over the cement median, rocketing right towards the Firebird. The last shooters peppered the truck with bullets, but Pablo crashed right into the car, and in the chaos, his men shot down the last attackers. For the next two hours, shootouts were reported all over Oinaga as Pablo searched for the culprit. There'd been a dozen or more shooters. This had to be the work of a big operation, maybe a rival from another territory. He kidnapped and brutally interrogated anyone who had been seen at the supermarket that night, even innocent civilians. According to local rumors, he used his fake police badge to set up a roadblock on the highway that passed through town. Anyone who had heavy weaponry in their car without a good explanation would be taken out to the desert and executed. 
U.S. Customs received reports of at least 13 deaths in the Oinaga area over the course of the night. The gunfire could be heard all the way across the river. And for all that blood, Pablo never did find out who was behind the ambush. There were dozens of different drug factions coming in and out of Oinaga every day, picking up cocaine from his warehouses. It could have been any of them. But ultimately, he became convinced the culprit was Lupe Arevalo, the son of his old rival Fermin. There was absolutely no evidence connecting him to the ambush, but to Pablo, in his crack-fueled paranoia, it didn't matter. Pablo called up his friend Mimi Webb Miller and told her to schedule another meeting with U.S. Customs agent David Regula. This time, he finally had a proposition. He wanted to help bust Lupe Arevalo. Regula knew Lupe was probably not behind the shootout, but he also knew that Lupe had been running heroin out of Chihuahua City for years, and he was happy to help put him behind bars. He introduced Pablo to an informant named Jean, and together they hatched a plan to lure Lupe across the border, where Regula could arrest him. For a month or two, Pablo fed Regula and Jean any information he heard about the Arevalos, but his tips were all incorrect or unhelpful. Either he wasn't trying, or he was out of the loop, or he was losing his grip on reality. Customs agents weren't able to catch a single member of the Arevalo family. By the summer of 1986, Pablo was so senselessly paranoid that he would only agree to meet with Regula in a windowless back room of his nephew Pedro's house. Pedro stood constant guard, silent and dead-eyed. Pablo was chain-smoking crack cigarette after crack cigarette, rambling obsessively about Lupe Arevalo. Regula knew that Lupe was the least of Pablo's problems. While Pablo was off in Cancun, several U.S. newspapers had published stories linking him to the propane truck cocaine seizures in Alamogordo and El Paso the previous summer. He was back at the top of the DEA's most wanted list. Pablo's biggest problem with the articles was that they misrepresented him on a personal level. The DEA had described him as a vicious, extremely dangerous person with little regard for human life. Sure, he'd killed some folks, but that was just business. He was also a benefactor of the community. The danger of a DEA investigation went right over Pablo's head. His only concern was Lupe Arevalo. If he got rid of Lupe, all his problems would disappear. But the undeniable truth was gnawing at the back of his mind. He had a more serious threat than Lupe Arevalo. Every problem he was facing, from the border crackdowns to the rivalries, could be traced back to one thing, cocaine. At his next meeting with David Regula in August 1986, Pablo had a moment of clarity. He calmly looked the narcotics agent in the eye and said, I want to get the Colombians out of Oinaga. For the next few months, the Mexican drug lord and the U.S. Customs Service would join forces to bring down the Colombian cocaine trade. Pablo had created this mess. 
and he was finally ready to clean it up. But at this point in the game, it may already be too late. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we look at Pablo's battle against the Colombian cartels he'd allowed into Oinaga just years earlier. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.